I was always interested in making money. I had a little tuck shop when I was um, at school in my locker and I'd buy penny sweets, but I would sell them for a penny. So it's completely pointless, but I kind of enjoyed that. <laughs> at the end of the day, we want the same thing. We want an easy life. We do want to make a little bit of money, but we do want to leave the world a better place. Yeah, I'm 38 now. When we started this company, we were 28. Yeah. You know, anyone who's gone through their 20s will know that's when you change probably the most. I've created this like pork crackling um, opportunity. I'm flavoring pork crackling. I'm double cooking it. I've got this brand that I think will sell. If you focus all your attention on the actual product and worry about if it tastes good, looks good, does good, and then if that stales on its own, and then you add a really cool brand to it with all the kind of fluffiness that a brand brings, and that then surely sells really, really well. Our eating habits are changing. We're demanding better dining experiences, and the food market has never been so competitive. Starting and succeeding with a food business is challenging, but some determined and passionate entrepreneurs are flourishing. These people have big dreams, big passion and big drive. They are disruptors, change makers and innovators. They see a positive future. Many say that food business is too risky. Some say that it has huge rewards. Are you up for the challenge? I really enjoyed sitting down with Nick Coleman today from Snaffling Pig. It's so obvious that he lives and breeds the brand and he's done phenomenally well um, starting the business with £500 and growing it to have numerous different products, brand extensions uh, and so many different distribution uh, revenue streams. And I learned so much really about leveraging uh, the brand, the power of the brand building a following and yeah, really thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. So sit back, relax and enjoy Nick Coleman. So uh, it'd be great to start on your earlier years growing up and I suppose to get into your entrepreneurial background. Like, did you always have an entrepreneurial mindset, you think, or did you have entrepreneurial ventures when you were young or how did that develop? Interesting. Cause I, I, are people born entrepreneurs or are they, are they made? I, this is the big unanswered un un mm. question, really. I think for me, um, I was always interested in making money. I had a little tuck shop when I was um, at school in my locker and I'd buy penny sweets, but I would sell them for a penny. So, so it's completely pointless, but I kind of enjoyed <laughs> that. Um, I, at university, uh, I bought some oranges and I hired an orange juice machine and I kind of made fresh orange juice. And I put them in bottles and I'd sell those for like £1.50. But I think I worked out it was cost me like £3.75 to make each bottle. So oh, wow. I was losing money on that one. Uh, at least I was breaking even on the first one. <laughs> um, and then when I left uni, I bought a couple of houses um, and, and rented them out to students. The, the bank at the time uh, wouldn't lend me any money. So I, I pretended to get married and pretended to buy a car. And that, that gave me the loans to be able to buy the houses, to put deposits down on the house and then rent them out. And then through, through what I called Orange Grove Properties, which was like a made up name, um, I kind of learned a little bit about business and how actually you do need to make a little bit of profit, you have to good cash flow. Uh, and then from that, I went and worked at M&S and was, a, was um, a store manager and a commercial manager. And I think I realized at that M&S that what is the point of, of going to, to work every single day? Like, what do you actually 
doing and it kind of dawned on me that all I was doing was adding value to shareholders. There was no kind of personal gain that I was really getting out of it. I was learning, but if I, was, if I stopped learning, I wouldn't have got as excited about it. So I think there was a switch then that decided, you know, I need to be a master of my own destiny here and, and if I'm going to create wealth, I need to create it for myself. Okay. But that was kind of my, my first business was, was I was more focused on making money and I've learned that's not actually the, the, well, it's not why you should go into business because you, you very rarely make money. You need yeah. to have bigger things, a bigger purpose. Sure. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably like half, half split from the people I speak to. Like a lot of people start, they're looking for money and they're looking yeah. to purchase tangible things for themselves. But then the other side have this vision or mission yeah. that they're trying to achieve. Or I think even deeper, they're trying to, I don't know, fulfill something in themselves or feel validated or validated, feel you're right. kind of get credibility purpose. or something. It is, yeah. And I, I think you, you, have, you have to go on the journey to realize what, what you actually want out of it. And I don't think there's anything wrong in starting out wanting to make money, but I don't think that will actually guide you in the right way. I think you'll make the wrong decision. If you're so focused on how do I make profit, then you might not necessarily think about like, the bigger picture. And actually, when, when, it's really, when you have those really dark moments in business that, that we will all be having, those kind of sleepless nights, if all your motivation is money, it's going to be really difficult to get through that. But if you're motivated by this deeper purpose, this kind of vision, this like you know, this want to make the world a better place, whatever it may be, um, then I think that's going to help you get through those moments and kind of fight the good fight. Okay, makes sense. So tell us about your your medical supplies business. Was the business, I guess, that overlapped Snaffling Pig? Uh, how did that come about, and why go into medical supplies after? I guess you had the, the, the flats or the houses you had. Yeah. Uh, what attracted you to that industry? Yeah. How did that go? And then how did that lead into Snaffling Pig? So medical supermarket, what we called it, um, it started uh, when it started about 10 years ago. And I, so I worked at Marks & Spencer, loved, loved my time there, but had this kind of epiphany that what's the point of working and just growing other people's wealth, I need to grow my own. So I left Medi um, Marks & Spencer and I went to a company called BMI Healthcare, which is a hospital group. And it was there that I kind of started to think about, um, and what my job was to buy and sell medical supplies. And it was there that I started to think, well, actually, maybe I could go and do my own business. But I did not want to do it on my own. I don't have all the skills needed to run a business on my own. And I, and I thought it would be quite a lonely experience. I wanted to do it with somebody else. And I, I was just really fortunate that, that there was a guy uh, working at that company called Udi who uh, we just got on really well. And we just kind of, every time we went to make coffees, like, you know, you kind of go and grab 15 minutes, you go and have a chat and you talk about kind of what's your values, what are your, what are your purpose, what are your drive, what do you want to achieve? And we, we just kid it off and we decided that we would go and start a, a medical company. Why medical? Well, we, buy, we were buying medical products for this company, BMI, and we decided, well, we can, we can still buy medical products outside of our job and we'll just sell them to medical professionals. So it's kind of doing what we're already doing, mm. but making a little bit of money on the side for it. Okay. So uh, we, I, was t I didn't have the guts to quit my job. Um, so I wrote the letters and Udi handed them in and then did the formal work that we're, we're now leaving. And, and he then went on holiday for two weeks whilst I, <laughs> I, I hit the phones and did some cold calling and tried to sell medical products to GP surgeries. And then he came back two weeks later refreshed and he was kind of the, the face of the company out and out on the road and I was the guy cold calling, and that is a tough job, like constantly on the phones, like just being rejected day, like one after the other. Uh, and it just kind of spiraled from there, really. And we, we started to sell medical supplies, we sold stationery, housekeeping, uh, very kind of commodity-based products, um, not our own brand, we're selling other people's brands, but we were learning about business, and we were learning the art of, of what to buy, when to sell, who to sell to, 
logistics behind that, you know, stock volumes, cash flow. So it was an amazing lesson for us. And that business is still around today and, and doing really well. Okay. And I guess them early days, you learned to work together as well. Definitely, yeah. I mean, having a business partner is like a marriage, you know. Yeah. It's, you, you really have to work on it. And, yeah. and you know, there are times where we fall out. There are times we argue and disagree. But I think the, the thing that really binds us is we have this, one, we have this love for each other, like a, uh, a plutonic love that, that kind of holds us together. But we just, we, we appreciate what each other does. And I think we, we take time out to kind of um, tell each other that. And I think, you know, there's, we, at the end of the day, we want the same thing. We want an easy life. We do want to make a little bit of money, but we do want to leave the world a better place and, mm. and we want to spend time with our families. And, and mm. because both of us are trying to achieve that, us having disagreements at work is only just trying to get to that result quicker. That's all it is. So, sure. we, um, yeah. so it sounds like your fundamental aims are very well aligned. Definitely, yeah. What about your skill sets? So is that yeah. just purely coincidental that you complemented each other? Or is that something you worked on to kind of find your, your kind of focus in a business? Yeah. Or? I meet a lot of entrepreneurs who say to me, how do I find like the best um, co-founder? It's really, really tough. It's like, well, how do you find a, a husband and wife partner? It doesn't, it's, it's, it's kind of a bit of luck. It's a sliding door moment. What happens if I hadn't got that job? Or I'd, I'd, what happens if I hadn't wanted to get a coffee that particular morning, hadn't run into Udi? So um, I think we, Udi and I started out having very similar skill sets. We were both buyers. We both had confidence in, 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 um, in ourselves, in, you know, people, we, you know, kind of, I'd say we're, we're people, people, we, we, we can walk into a room, and we can just get on with anyone in the room. Um, we, that, we definitely lacked um, kind of a deeper financial knowledge. So that was kind of a skill set that we, we, we kind of, we, we needed. Um, but we, we, would, we were kind of driven by this core belief, this, these set of values. As the business has progressed, we have absolutely slotted into where we feel comfortable. Udi is phenomenal at sales. He is the he just he is relentless. He just keeps like knocking those door downs. And what he's he's a really good um, people person, internal people person. Like he, he can motivate the staff. He can get the culture going in the company. My skill set is bit I'm a bit more, a bit more of the maverick. Like I'm the guy who likes to set things on fire mm. and um, and and see what happens and learn from it. And I make loads of mistakes. So I'm kind of the guy who's constantly pushing things forward. Mm. And Udi's the kind of guy who's the, who's there, kind of sweeping things up and mm. making sure that um, that we we you know our sales are growing and, and we're mm. doing we're kind of hitting those top line figures. Okay. And that by us kind of fitting into that kind of more self-aware piece where we really feel comfortable in the skin we're in has enabled us to kind of grow even more. Sure. Um, so it is really like a marriage. You're, you're yeah. finding your way and making it work somehow. It is. And, and yeah. Yeah, I'm 38 now. When we started this company, we were 28. Yeah. You know, anyone who's gone through their 20s will know that's when you change probably the most. Mm. Uh, I, I've absolutely grown into the, this character I am today. I'm not the same person 10 years ago. Okay. Um, I hope maybe I'll, I'll keep evolving or maybe it will slow down a little bit. Yeah. So. Okay, so I know you initially started Snuffling Pig yourself, mm -hmm. um, while Udi was, I guess, focusing more on the medical supplies business. Yeah, I know you started it with five hundred pounds as a bet. <laughs> how did that all come about? And I guess how did you start it with five hundred pounds? That's the yeah. good question. Yeah. So, um, so the reason that came out is that uh, we got medical supermarkets about three million pound turnover. 
and I got bored. And I said to Oods, I'm, I, I, if, I, if I don't go and do something new, I'm going to go and become a, a BA pilot. Or I, I actually tried to become a BA pilot, believe it or not, and I'd be a terrible, terrible pilot. Never put an entrepreneur in the pilot seat. You'll ignore the manual and you'll, oh, we've got an issue. Let's, uh, let's ignore process. Just go with the flow. Yeah. So um, I decided that I, I wanted to take 500 quid out of a uh, medical supermarket. Um, and and Udi was taking 500 quid out as well and we would go start a brand new enterprise on our own and we would then kind of present back in in six months time to say what what we'd created and um, I I'd done did work on about six months whilst working on medical supermarket and then when I came back to Udi and said look I've, I've created this like pork crackling um, opportunity I'm flavoring pork crackling I'm double cooking it I've got this brand that I think will sell I actually want to now uh, leave Mel Supermarket and go do this full time. Um, that that did cause a bit of a rift between Udi and I because you know quite rightly Udi's like, well, hang on, you can't leave me. We've we've done what is it five years of work together. You can't suddenly just disappear. Uh, so we had the kind of a, an, a quite a conversation that happened over a number of months to try and work out how I could go and do this. Uh, we came to an agreement and um, and then I kind of stepped aside from medical supermarket and. and kind of fully kind of ran with Snaffling Pig. Okay. And that 500 quid, I kind of spanked that so fast, like, really? yeah, as okay. you'd expect. Yeah. Uh, I got a nice logo designed and some packaging. And um, it wasn't, I could have used that 500 quid a little bit better than okay. I did. Uh, but what it did enable me to do was I bought some brown bags and I, I poured some crackling into the bags. I took them down to the pub and I made a profit on them from day one. Unlike the orange juice, yeah. uh, each packet I was making money on, which meant that all that 500 quid did was just enable me to buy enough stock to then get some cash flow churning and okay. it went from there. So really you were testing it and validating the concept, proving it, I guess. Proof That's concept. it. I, yeah. I am a huge believer in minimal viable product mm. and just get out there and test it. And we continually do that. We've mm. got about, there's about 10 products that Snaffling Pig are working on at the moment, which are all kind of part of our like, MVP, which, you know, you're almost a little embarrassed about them because they're, they're, they're in so much, they're in the infancy. The product is amazing. They look and taste great but the packaging they're in is just, is, you know it's not up to standard. Mm. But that's part of its charm, and we're very open about that. And we give them to customers and say, look, this is a range that we're developing. You are the first to see this. It is not in the format it's going to be sold in, mm. but we want to see if it actually works. Mm. Because if, I think if you focus all your attention on the actual product and worry about if it tastes good, looks good, does good, and then if that stales on its own, and then you add a really cool brand to it with all the kind of fluffiness that a brand brings, and that then surely sell really, really well. Mm. I think a lot of people worry about the brand and then just end up packaging a turd sure. and, and, it's, and it just, it's not going to sell because sure. customers are clever. They'll sure. buy it once and never buy it again. Sure. I'm actually reading a book at the moment. It's called Pact. And they're saying that uh, mock-up products is a good mm. way of doing it. So I have nothing in the box, just yeah. have a branded box, yeah. put it on a shelf in the supermarket, stand there and see if somebody's attracted by it. So see if you can compete on the shelf Love that. Uh, just with your branding. It's a good yeah. way of doing it. Yeah, it's very cheap, obviously. Yeah, yeah very cheap. <laughs> um, very good. Um, so how did you get your first listing then? Your first significant listing, anyway. The first significant, yeah. well, the, the very first listing was a pub. And it was, it, I spent four hours packing flavoured pork crackling into, into brown bags. Mm. And I made about 100 packs. Uh, took them to a local pub and sold, I think, 60 in the first pub and then the last 40 in the, in the second pub. So in about 40 minutes, we'd sold out, uh, right. which I was really excited about, but devastated because I spent four hours making these bags and now I had to go back and make more. Uh, so it's a bit of a silly way to look at it. But um, that was our first customer. That was the three tons in Henley. The first significant customer was Rebellion Brewery, which is, is in Marlow, which is where I'm from. And um, we, I wanted to sell them packets of pork crackling. 
And they said no, because they had a supplier of, of pork crackling already. It was a local butcher. And they, they said something to me that really hits home, is that relationships are really important to them. And they're not just going to ditch uh, their long-standing supplier just because there's a new kid on the block mm. who's got a different way of, um, a different, slightly different product. And I, I love that. I love the fact that someone was willing to say a relationship is more important than just something fancy and new and shiny. Mm. So they said the only thing they were going to do was they would buy the product from me if I could package it in a way that looked truly innovative. And that wasn't about just sticking it in another bag. That was like thinking a bit differently. Uh, so we went away and about a week later we presented them with a glass jar. So instead of selling them a packet of crackling for a pound, we sold them a glass jar for £15. Beautiful gift product, you know, great value, looked really lovely. Uh, and, they, and they bought it. And then very quickly, they obviously were, were our biggest customer, but then, and they continue to this day, uh, one, of our, one of our biggest independent customers out there, yeah. buying these, these lovely glass jars for us. Okay, very good. Um, so what challenges did you have then in starting up and getting to a level of scale? So was it more like getting listings or was it an operational thing or what were your big challenges? Oh, there's, so, there's so many, I think that's yeah. the... Uh, Cash flow, I guess, is a serious thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sends shivers down my spine, cash. Yeah. I think it's, um, cash, is, is, cash will kill you. Mm. No matter how good you are, everything else, cash will kill you. So that, that's mm. always got to be the, the, the biggest focus of the company. Mm. Um, and that has been such, an, like, such a focus of mine for the last kind of three or four years. Mm. Um, we've recently crowdfunded and we've raised cash. And that has taken the pressure off to it in a different <clears> way. I now, now I have cash, I'm now petrified of losing it, mm. so I'm almost a little bit tighter with it because I, I now I've, I, I, I can't possibly lose it, and especially as it's other people's money. Mm. Before it was my own, so if I lost it, that's my own problem. But I, so, so I'm kind of more careful with cash than ever, really. Um, there's so many other things. I, I've never worked in the food industry before. I didn't understand food health and safety. Um, obviously allergens are such a, a scary thing. You never want to mess with people's health at all. Uh, there are things that you can do in business that are a little bit kind of fly by the seat of your pants. But when it comes to food safety, that's just a no-no. You have to play that directly down the, down the line. So um, big learning for us was that. I think my biggest advice is uh, stay away from allergens. Like if you can, remove them completely from your, your company. Okay. Um, the supply chain is always a worry. You, know, mm. you, you can control your, your bit, uh, but you're very reliant on other people doing their, their thing as well. And mm. even if they're BRC accredited, does not mean that they are absolutely perfect. You've seen these scandals in the food industry, you know, Tesco, Sainsbury's involved in things. Um, you know, when they look bad at their supply chain, someone has let them down. So that, that kind of keeps me up at night as well. Okay. Um, what about your initial bulk orders, I suppose? Because obviously you need to commit to a minimum mm. order of such but you don't really have the cash or the commitment from That's, the other side. It's a bit chicken and egg, isn't uh, it? It is, that, that first it's the order. gift of the gab. I mean, is it? You, okay. you, you've, got to, you've got to play the game. So you, know, you walk into a supplier's and you're going to be the best thing since sliced bread, and I'm going to sell more pork crackling than anyone else out there. And by the way, I need you to give me 60-day payment terms. And you have to take a minimum order. There's no way that you're going to want to take a container load of product. Mm. So we were just fortunate. We found an awesome manufacturer who really believed what we were, we were trying to do. And, uh, and they supported us and they, they, they allowed us to buy in minimal quantities. And when I say minimal, we were buying cases, like we weren't buying even pallets, wow. cases of products. And that enabled us to see what worked. And we, we, made, we bought some product that didn't work. We did curry flavored crackling, didn't work. Cranberry and orange flavored crackling, didn't work. Fennel, didn't work. Shame, because that was a nice product. Mm. Uh, but enabled us to keep trying lots of different things. And, uh, and then what's happened now is that we're at a stage where that manufacturer couldn't support us at this level. So we've now had to introduce a new manufacturer as well. Um, and then it's they work on different lead times and different 
kind of uh, minimum orders. So mm. we've had to learn from that as well. But there's okay. so many things that keep me, keep sure. me up at night and worried. Sure. So you mentioned cash, and I know you went on to Dragon's Den relatively soon after you, you started. Uh, it's one of the success stories. And from me speaking to people, I hear like this kind of 50-50, like some are success, some are mm. kind of bad PR even potentially. A lot of deals don't go through. Like what was your, I guess, first of all, what was your reason for going on? And from the success of it, I believe you got good PR. But um, yeah, what was your experience as a whole with that? It was a great experience for us. Yeah. I wouldn't advise it for everybody. Okay. Um, we were early enough in our venture that if we'd got negative PR and the business flopped because of it, we weren't that far down the line that it wouldn't have been the end of the world. We were mm. like, oh, that was a good lesson to learn. Um, we went into it very aware of what, what we were entering into. That you know, that is a is a live environment that, that Dragons in. Although it's an entertainment show on telly, but in reality, you know, when you walk into those uh, into the, into that lift, you are absolutely opening your your kind of your books, all your risks to the world. Mm. And, and it will be online forevermore. So you have to make sure that whatever you state in the den, you live up to. If you, if you give a three-year sales projection, in three years' time, if you haven't hit it, mm. um, everyone's going to know about it if they're that interested in it. Mm. So, um, in, and half the deals that are successful in the den don't go through outside of the den as well. Um, I think why we've been successful is that one, we, we managed to get a dragon who is actually a really nice guy. Who's, who's, there's a lot of assholes out there and he isn't one and he has been incredibly supportive of us nick jenkins he had a company called moonpig and he very at the very beginning of our relationship he sat down and went you know what nick i'm not going to open any doors for you i'm not going to do the job for you i don't know anyone in in the food world so i can't really help you with supply chain but what i'm going to do is i'm going to bring a lot of financial management to the, to the business i'm going to help you structure the company in a way that means that you as a leadership team uh, have the right resources around you. I'm going to make sure that you uh, get to know your finances, get to know your profitability, your profitability by customer, by channel, by product, and just bring a lot of that kind of grown-up mentality. He's almost like a father figure to the company, mm. but he's, he wasn't going to open any doors. And because he laid out exactly what he was going to do and what he wasn't, we didn't go into this relationship annoyed at, oh, he hasn't done that. We knew exactly what we were signing up to. And, so, and he's also kept quite an arm's length reach uh, from us because he... He knows that we love being entrepreneurs. And mm. so the worst thing he could do is constrict us and tell us what to do or, or bind us to some kind of board meeting that would bore the pants off me. Instead, he knows that I like to kind of fly by the seat of my pants. I like to suddenly do a board meeting next week uh, and, and just go and do it in a pub and have a good chat about the product and, and the brand rather than having structured that's every single quarter and we're going to go through all kinds of boring sure. analysis. So it's more like a mentor figure or somebody definitely. to kind of bounce ideas yeah, off. Yeah, definitely. Okay. definitely. Do you have any other mentors or...? Nothing like, uh, formal. I okay. mean, we, I love meeting people. I love hearing people's yeah. stories. I think I've, I've learned something from pretty much every conversation I've ever had, no matter who that person is, what their background is, whether, whether they're an entrepreneur or not, it doesn't matter. Everyone has something I can, I can learn from. Um, and so I don't really have a, a set mentor, but I, I guess I'm, I, I open my mind up to experiences and people and environments that kind of help me then apply that to my business. Because everything can be applied back to, to the sure, brand. Sure, very good. So whilst we're on the, the cash topic, let's talk about crowdfunding. You mentioned it briefly there. Um, again, why did you choose to go down that option? And again, there's kind of mixed stories about it. Some are successful, some are not. There's some good PR, some bad PR. Uh, why take that approach? Um, and how was your experience with it? Because you were very successful. You raised a million pounds? That's right. Yeah. Over a million pounds. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I, 
about a year ago, 18 months ago, I hated crowdfunding mm. because I think there are a lot of brands out there taking the piss and I think there's a lot of people who are setting unrealistic valuations on their company. And all it's a cheap way for a brand to raise a lot of money and I cannot understand how an investor would ever get their money back. And so I had this kind of negative perception of, of crowdfunding. And I think that is, and it, I think it's absolutely just. I think a lot of people might argue, but I think it's just. I think if you look at some examples out there, there are some valuations where people are saying their business is worth 16 times their turnover. And there is no way in hell they're ever going to be able to exit that company and, and create value for that investor. So um, I, I wanted, I've always wanted to crowdfund, despite hating it, because I've always wanted to surround myself with hundreds, if not thousands, of brand ambassadors for the brand. I think in today's world, it's no, it's, a brand shouldn't be owned by just one person, it should be owned by a community. It's part of that community, and everyone should have ownership of it. A bit like a pub, yeah? I think your local pub, everyone should own your local pub because that, they're the people who actually buy into it, and they're, mm. they're, that's what they need. And we need people to buy our product, and that's the only way we can survive. And therefore, we need people to buy into the brand. And I wanted us to get, I wanted to get the brand to a point that when we went to crowdfund, we actually asked for a very fair valuation. So when we went, we asked for two times turnover. But actually, it's very, very fair and actually under-egged what a lot of the kind of the market says. Kind of in, in my kind of industry, it can be kind of three to six times turnover. Um, so two times turnover, really, really fair. And we're at a point where we were profitable. We, were, we had some really good success stories uh, in terms of our uh, case studies, customers we worked with. Um, and we built up a really good network. And I think the reason why our crowdfunding was successful is actually I didn't rely on the crowdfunding company, the, the people who, who ran it, to bring me any investors. I just worked on our existing network, our consumers, the people who bought on our website, our suppliers, our stakeholders, uh, through my network, Udi's network, our staff's network. And we kind of worked that network and we got people involved that way. And then we, we launched, and within, a, I think it was in seven days, we hit our target, which wow. was 750. Uh, and then we ended up doing about 1.3 uh, mil altogether um, from just, just shy of 2,000 investors. Okay, so most of that came from your own networks as opposed to social media or gaining traction kind of externally? I mean, I haven't done the analysis, but I would, I would hazard a guess that of the 2,000 people, 1,900 have had an interaction with Snaffling Pig. Wow. Yeah, and there's very few that would not have heard of Snaffling Pig or bought it or, uh, yeah. Okay. Know. Very good. Would you do it again, do you think? Would I, so not with Snaffling Pig, because I, have, I have made a promise to the shareholders uh -huh. that I will not uh, dilute their shareholding by raising more money. Uh, I want to be really careful with the money they've invested. I want to invest mm. it in our brand in the right <coughs> way. I don't think for the, for the things I want to do with Snaffling Pig, I don't think I need investment again within the next three to five years. Um, I believe that the snaffling pig can get to a point where we would attract a bigger owner of the company to come in and take on snaffling pig and then that's at the point when the investors can then exit should, should they wish to. Okay. Um, so uh, but would I do it again? Yes, with another brand, uh, but I would wait until, again, similar situation snaffling pig, I'd wait till that brand had, had uh, proved itself um, and, and wasn't going to get bust. I mean, oh my God, I heard a horror story last week or a couple of weeks ago. There's a brand out there that raised hundreds of thousands of pounds and within 18 months uh, it's gone bust. Wow. I just think that is Ooh, disgraceful. It, it can happen, I know, but when you raise that kind of money, you have to be careful with it. You know, you are, you're dealing with people's uh, money, investments. They, will, they worked hard to earn that. Don't go spank it on a brand new 
car or a lovely billboard. Sure, you got a responsibility um, for a lot of people. Definitely, yeah, yeah. 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 If they've got two thousand people, are going to be pissed off for me. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's a lot of emails to receive. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Very good. It sounds like Snaffling Pig is not kind of at the end of Nick Coleman either. Like there's other <laughs> ideas going on there. Yeah? <laughs> Never. No way. Yeah. Very good. If you got to talk about the current market and your thoughts on it, obviously it's super competitive to get into places and yeah. to. Uh, I guess retain and maintain relevance to an extent. The, the world changing so quickly and uh, Instagram, etc. What's your thoughts on the market as it stands? And also, I guess touch on veganism and health. That these trends um, continuing to grow so far, anyway. Mm. Um, how do you think, or what do you think of that space, mm -hmm. and it's how do you fit into that? So. It has never been, I think, a more exciting time to be a, a small startup food brand. I think there's so much opportunity out there. And it's lovely to see people like Sainsbury's supporting small brands. You've got people like Whole Foods and Planet <coughs> Organic who are giving these small brands a platform to showcase what they're up to and then the bigger retailers can take them on. Um, so so it's, it's a phenomenal time. And I think your yeah, access to money is fantastic. You've got crowdfunding, you've got grants going on. You've got uh, millennials who, who actually want to work for small brands and kind of cut their teeth and, on, on on startup, so overall, awesome time. I don't think there could have been a better time. Um, the the market at the moment is there is a huge trend in, in health and, and veganism, uh, and and that's great. You know, fully supportive of that. There is always going to be counter trends to that, and right now the counter trend is indulgence and meat. Uh, so you are seeing a surge in in in, the, in that as well. What I love about Snaffling Pig is that we don't do things because everyone is doing it. You know, we, we, when the world zigs, we zag. Mm. I'm not, that's not something I made up. <laughs> Someone else made up that saying. Um, but that is what Snaffling Pig is all about. We are unashamedly proud of who we are. And I think as humans, we should, uh, we should just enjoy life. And we should just, you know, we, we can eat kale and, and whatever and go, and go to the gym Monday to Friday. But on a Saturday, what's wrong with going and, and enjoying yourself, letting your hair down? What's wrong with going to the pub and having a couple of couple of beers or, or not even drinking, just being surrounded by mates and, and just enjoying life. And I think that the society throws all this you know, negativity about you, ha you, have to, you have to look a certain way or you have to, uh, you know, on Instagram, life's too, that's, that's just not real life, I hate it. Uh, that's why I'm not on social media personally. Uh, so Snaffling Pig is all about helping people, what we call escape the rind of life, helping people enjoy, enjoy those moments. So when every single brand, I think every single brand is trying to be vegan at the moment, mm. Snaffling Pig is not. Mm. We are the guys who launched a gammon steak in Veganuary last year. Uh, we've got so many more meat products coming out and we're all about high quality, high welfare, British pork and, and, and being proud of that and, and supporting those farmers, supporting the British rural infrastructure and doing it in a fun, creative and authentic way. And there'll always be a market for that as long as you're kind of commit to your roots and, and your belief and your values. So um, I, I think it's, it's an exciting opportunity. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that people are talking about veganism because that just means that when everyone is focused on here, we're the guys focused over okay. here. Okay, interesting, very good. Um, I've wrote down a few of your brand extensions in terms of products. So obviously pork scratching is the original. You also have advent calendars, gift packs for beers, sauces, gammon steaks as you mentioned, and the list goes on. That's it phenomenal, the level of creativity and innovation. Like, and I guess that the fundamental um, point is you've built a brand that can support all of these different products. So how did you, I guess, build a brand to enable you to extend to all these different lines of products? And how do you sell them? How do they remain yeah, connected yeah. and aligned with the brand? I mean, we, we have about, I mean, my warehouse has over 300 
products now. Now that's not 300 individual products, it's 300, it might be uh, a, a one, one core product like the perfectly salty crackling is sold in a case of six, a case of 12, a 24, a, it's got clip strips, a case of 50. But we do a lot of products out there. Everyone I speak to says to me, whoa, you know, Pareto, 80-20, just focus on your core products and you'll do much better. I don't like that, I'm an entrepreneur. I like kind of doing all things and seeing what sticks, minimal viable product. So we, we started out selling pork crackling, we, we, and we had a very good core product. It was flavoured, it was double cooked, it was made in Britain, it was, kind of, it was doing everything that the other pork crackling companies weren't doing. And then by wrapping a really exciting brand around it, got, just got people talking about it. And then what we did is we slotted in a beer next to it to kind of say, you know, you're eating crackling, why don't you have a drink of beer alongside that? That started to sell. We then did a, a cider, that started to sell. We then thought, well, we're crackling, why don't you... What about a nice dip to go with it? Well, applesauce makes sense. They're not, oh, well, there's still a hot sauce. So that, that kind of spirals. Then you do gifting and you kind of, let's actually, instead of selling a packet of crackling, let's do a jar of crackling. Instead of selling a beer on its own, let's put it as part of a gift pack. Uh, how do we now get consumers to eat this product once a day for an entire month? Well, an advent calendar would kind of do that job. Uh, and then you kind of get into more chilled products as well. So you've got gammon steaks, we've even got sausages, bacon, gammon joints. All these are launching relatively soon. Uh, and so I, I, we're in a very unique position that we're probably one of the very few brands that you can get us in the ambient snack aisle, you can get us in the chiller, you can get us in the pub, you can get us in John Lewis, you can get us in Tesco's. We're in so many channels, you buy us online direct, you can get a monthly subscription. I kind of want to hit a consumer at every moment of their potential day uh, because that gives me another opportunity to, to sell to them. Sure. But it can't always be the same product because no matter how much you like pork crackling, you do not want to eat that breakfast, lunch and dinner, Monday to Sunday. You're always going to want to introduce other things. So if I can make the most awesome bacon roll for your breakfast, the most incredible sausages for your lunch, the most amazing beer for, for your after work, um, enjoyment and then followed up with a, a packet of crackling then you know you can actually enjoy snaffling pig throughout the day sure We're, I'm not gonna be virgin you're not gonna fly on a snaffling pig plane and go to a snaffling pig island that just that's not us we ha we are we are all about food and drink but we're about enjoying and indulgence and flavors and that uh, there'll be products that will kind of tie into that sure and something tells me you don't have a very structured growth plan or business plan like from from the beginning this wasn't kind no. of set out it's no. just an idea that comes, you test it. If it works, you go with it. If it doesn't, you lose so, it. I, I, did, I don't know about you. I, I went to university. I studied business studies. I, I learned how to make the most boring business plan ever that was 30 pages long that you'd stick in your desk and never read again. I, for some reason, that's what business theory teaches you. Mm. In reality, is a business plan should be a page. It should be really high level. It should just it should ooze passion and, and innovation. The only thing that small businesses have is innovation. The big mm. guys have distribution. It is our job to innovate, and it, is, and it is our job to disrupt their distribution. And if we can do that through innovation, then we're going we're to win. And people like Unilever are going to want to buy us. Mm. Um, so it's, I, I started out, all I was concerned about was how to make the best pork crackling. And that, that was all I worried about. And then as you hit one risk or one hurdle, one, one uh, celebration, you then move on to the next thing. And Ooh. it's constantly a, a, kind of a, a roller coaster of emotions. And I'm now at a stage where I actually do have my three to five year plan set out. Um, it was in my investment deck that we pitched in, in crowdfunding. But it's still very high level because I know every conversation is going to lead to something uh, potentially new and exciting. Ooh. And I think if you're, if you're closed off to that, if you think all I'm gonna do is make almond milk, and that's, that's all I am, then your category is only so big. But if you say, I'm gonna sell the most awesome food and drink, then my category is enormous. Yes, it means I'm gonna to have to work really hard at selling different to different channels, different categories, 
I'm going to have to really kind of, uh, I guess, um, learn faster than everyone else because they're going to be experts in each of those categories. But, but me as a brand, a Snaffling Pig, can translate into many different ways. And sure. that's, that's just how I've set the company up in the beginning. Sure. And I guess because you have so many different products, the brand is kind of the, the, the father of all these. The brand and the, the quality and the perception of the brand is super important. That Absolutely. it is consistent. And that's, that's fragile to an extent as well. That's, so that's what keeps me up at night, the fragility okay. of that. I mean, you might have the most awesome 198 products that we sell, but the apple sauce might let you down. And that consumer will try that apple sauce and never want to eat anything snaffling pig ever again. Sure. So everything we do has to be of the utmost quality, but it all has to, it has to fit together. And, and it comes down to flavors, formats, and brand for us. We have to have really bold, bunch, punchy flavors that people go, wow, that tastes brilliant. Mm. It has to be in a really innovative format and exciting, and people look at that and go, that's pretty cool. What do you mean by format? Is that packaging or? Packaging, packaging. Yeah, okay. I mean, that, that's just when you, know, when, you, <laughs> when you just use the same word over and over again. Yeah. Um, so we call it format. So okay. yeah, how a, how a consumer will interact with that product, how do they see it? Is it a self-serve, is it a jar, is it a gift pack, is it an advent calendar? Uh, is it a pack of sausages that's, that's uh, on the sits on the shelf slightly differently, um, and then it's the brand. The brand then, then ties it all together, um, and that has to be really, really consistent. And there are some companies out there who have done it really well, like Innocent, phenomenal. You know, you, you can just see their brand translate into all those different categories, and sure. we're, we're really trying to do that as well. Okay, so how do you build that brand, and how do you maintain their consistencies? Is that a structured process, or that's very structured? Is it? Okay. But it's very simple. There's, yeah. I mean, our. our, our uh, approach to it is not to reinvent the wheel. There's, there's a lot of, um, a lot of, a, there's a train of thought that you make every single category look different, um, or there's a train of thought you make everything look exactly the same. And then there's the consumer, if they see a pack of crackling or they see a pack of sausages, they're gonna think snaffling pig. They're not gonna have to think differently. So we're making everything look exactly the same. Uh, and that just makes our life a hell of a lot easier. Okay, and the brand, I think that the brand elements are are quite closely based in your personality as well, so it's quite a natural thing for you to portray and personify. Think. Yeah, I mean, is that fair? I, I specifically built this brand in my own persona because it's yeah. so much easier. Because I, I, I can sell this product day in day out because it's basically me. Um, if, if I was to start a product that was targeted at a different type of person or, yeah, or had a different tone of voice, then it, yeah, it would be a bit, bit more difficult. Um, but I find that it was kind of part of the fun. I, I didn't put my name on the product because I don't, it's not, I don't want people to associate Snapping Pig with Nick. It's Snapping mm. Pig is whatever they want it to be. Mm. But I'm not afraid to have my personality on the pack because it's, that's what I know. I kind of, I use the language that I use. I say mega, awesome, wicked. Um, that's just, I'm a loser. That's what I say. Um, so I, I, I kind of, I, I think, um, yeah, just, I'm just kind of bringing that out in, in Snaffling Pig and making it me. Okay, very good. And in terms of your new products and the, I guess the creative process. So when you have a product you think could work, how are you testing that out? And to kind of what level do you, produce or brand or package um, before you decide, okay, we're going to run with it? So, the, I mean, the first thing is we are not chefs. So we, we mm. surround ourselves with some amazing chefs. Um, and when I say we, Udi and I, we're not chefs. Um, and, and so we, we are not afraid to bring in this expertise, right? Tell us what flavors really work together. I love eating, uh, but I don't know the science behind food. And that, you know, that takes years and years of practice. So, so uh, what, what flavors work really well? How can we, how can we make the product differently? Like how can we um, like kind of introduce it to a new consumer? 
a lot of women get put off by pork crackling because it's hard and, mm. and, it, and, and it's just it's seen as quite a chauvinistic product but what we've done is we've 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 double cooked it so it's kind of it's softer but crunchier and just by doing that it just brings a whole like 50 percent more people into the category mm. instantly uh, and so by surrounding yourself with chefs who, who understand how to do stuff um once they've told us, right, this product is awesome, and this is how it's made, and this is this, and we see, right, there's an there's an opportunity here. We'll go and test it as minimal viable product. We'll give it to our current consumers. We'll set up a stand. Um, we'll go and sample it. Uh, we'll send it in the post to people who have bought product from us in the past. Uh, we'll give it to our friends and our family. Um, and if if people like it, we'll go, well, let's go for it. And and we just don't buy or build in bulk. We won't suddenly bring a container load in. We'll just start really small. Let's sure. just do a very small batch. We'll lose money on every single one. A bit like the orange juice uh, jar. We'll, we'll 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 lose a couple of quid on every single product. But we'll get some really valuable kind of intel here. And I'd much rather sell a product and lose a few quid on it and learn than spend tens of thousands of pounds getting a market research company to interview twenty people and tell me something that I probably already know. Mm. Um, okay, interesting. Um, and in terms of your, I guess, the, the distribution channels, I know you sell online as well, and your website as well. How important is that side of the business? And do you see that growing as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. so we have, um, we have four channels. We have grocery, which is shops. We have on-trade, which is pubs. Uh, we have gifting, which is um, split into direct and indirect. So direct is our own website, indirect is kind of through like John Lewis, Selfridges, Debenhams. Uh, and then we have the f a fourth channel, which is kind of export really for us. Um, but the, the three core channels, uh, each one is, is absolutely vital. Um, online has, has is continues to, be, is to play a bigger role. It's a great forum to have like a, a direct relationship with the consumer. You can have a lot of fun with them. People kind of People buy into the brand when they when they when they buy it online because they mm. they've kind of they see it in, in kind of in all its glory in all its detail they they see the website they see the parcel arrive they see all our literature inside so they get a much better interaction when they walk through Tesco's and they make a, a very kind of quick buying decision on whether they have that packet or that packet they're probably not bought into the brand as much mm. but someone's physically had to go to a website enter their card details you know that's taken a quite a, a decision-making process um, so that's so we, we put a lot of money behind that and then pubs is, is kind of where I think where brands are made you, you go to a pub you're, you're going probably for the main reason you're going is to have fun and you're going and when you're there you want to you're, not, you're willing to spend a little bit more money and have a really great experience so it might be um, getting a, a different type of drink that you normally have at home it might be maybe even paying for a cocktail where there's a particular serve experience and when it comes to <coughs> snacking, it's kind of a, you know, two pints of lager and now a packet of crisps or a packet of scratchings, a packet of nuts. It's kind of like an additional thing. Mm. It's not, you don't go there just for the snacks, you go there for something else. Sure. So if we can have an interaction with our consumers there, we will be kind of tagged on to this lovely environment, lovely situation they're having. And subconsciously, they'll start to think of Snaffling Pig as, oh, that's the brand I had when I had that great night out or that awesome cocktail or that lovely dinner. And it's kind of that subconscious that we're now within their kind of their buying decision. Okay. So for us, pubs and online are absolutely vital. Okay. So that's almost the first step. So it's having that physical interaction. And then when they become kind of invested in the brand, maybe literally, <laughs> then they come onto the website and then they're kind of more tied into the brand. That, so yes, but how we actually did it is we, we couldn't get into pubs. Well, we got into pubs straight away, but that was only a few. And we couldn't get into retailers. So we, we had to invest all our money into, into online. So we built up a, a really good consumer 
base online and then we use that as a case study to get into the retailers uh -huh. and into the supermarkets okay. because they they want to know if they put you on the shelf that shelf space is so precious to them mm. and it's worth a certain amount of money because they will have to delist the current uh, brand and they know how much money that brand is making them so they need to know that it's low risk for them to introduce someone else and that they're going to make more money from that space and so if you've got a case study to say I'm online and I'm selling to X thousands of people and this is the average uh, sell price and this is uh, how many times they, they buy the brand and mm. that if you do get into that shop potentially you can get your army of online buyers to go into their local shop and buy it physically um, the, the retailer is going to kind of be much more uh, warm to, to, to putting on the shelf. Okay so how did you initially then drive the traffic to your website? If you hard, work in supermarkets, yeah. hard. I mean, that, that's um, that's using kind of Facebook advertising, Instagram okay. advertising, um, Google ads, uh, and then and just word of mouth, and just kind of beating the drum and like telling your friends and family about it, and getting them to buy a gift. And I think you know, for us, when the because online is predominantly gift based, uh, you're 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 getting the consumer, you're getting the customer to buy the gift, and then they're going to be giving it to the, the consumer. So you're getting two people to kind of see that brand mm. uh, and and what happens when you when you buy a gift is there's an emotional connection between the gift giver and the gift receiver mm. and the person who gives the gift actually gets less out uh, gets more out of it than the person who gets the gift because I think I don't know about you but when I get given a gift I feel kind of embarrassed but when I give a gift I'm like oh this is awesome look at this this is amazing yeah so we're actually kind of we kind of got two people there that we're kind of playing into and we're and we're, we're involved in that emotional connection that's being built between the two as well so it's um uh, yeah gifts for us is such a huge part of our business and why we've been able to build the brand that we've been okay. able to i know your advent calendars are super successful what, what an idea oh, <laughs> that was amazing. amazing i can't claim all credit for that okay. because um uh, about four years ago uh, we bought a lily's kitchen advent calendar for our dog fudge and um <laughs> and it's a little cockapoo and every day we had a i had this lovely interaction with my cockapoo i got i gave her a little treat out of the advent calendar her tail wagged and, and i just loved it for 24 days i had this lovely interaction and 24 days that advent calendar stared at me on the the mantelpiece and i kept thinking oh tomorrow i get to give fudge another little treat and she'll love it and it just hit me like a train i was like oh my gosh this could be snapping pig pork crackling wow. advent calendar and uh, we could have these kind of little interactions with our consumers every single day. Very cool. And so that's what we did. And we, you know, we, we did it before Advent calendars became kind of famous. Um, so we, ours has been out for now for about four years, I think. Okay. Uh, and, and everyone's doing it. It's highly competitive. Sure. So uh, we've now got the next thing, um, which we will launch this Christmas, but okay. I can't say anything about it. Okay. okay. You'll have to come it's back. It's still early <laughs> in the year. And, yeah, that people's coffee. Very good. You mentioned supermarkets there. Um, be good to get your thoughts on, I guess, structuring um, when and which supermarkets to go into, um, how you got into them. I know you mentioned online as well. Um, and also controlling your margins and making sure you're going in at the right margins. So what, what are your thoughts in general on that? Supermarkets are, they're tough. They're, mm. they're, they're easier to win and, hard, and, and very easy to lose. So um, just because you've won one doesn't mean you've, you've, you've made it. Mm. Uh, supermarkets, they will always concern me because they don't just come with a couple of stores, they come with thousands of stores and your entire business will change overnight the moment you've won a supermarket. So it's really important that if you do win one that you are you're able to lose them without impacting your current business. Because you know, imagine if you'd, you'd won, say you won Tesco's and it doubles the size of your business overnight 
you double your team, you double your infrastructure, your capacity, your warehouse, your all your cooking methods all double. And then in the next range of you, it hasn't sold. And that's no fault of Tesco's. That's probably your, the fault of your own brand um, because consumers don't get the packaging or, or they haven't they haven't built a product that they want to buy again. Um, and so they get you get delisted. Then what are you going to do with that infrastructure? Mm. So it's it's for me, it's really important that we built a brand that the supermarkets were kind of the icing on the cake and i mean what supermarkets we went for we we um just we we are very true to well we are pork crackling yeah we are um we're the everyday snack we are not posh um we're a premium snack but we're not uh exclusive we're not expensive uh we're just we're just good value and for for the everyday person and the everyday person shops pretty much everywhere so um they will shop in Lidl and Aldi and, and occasionally they'll go to Waitrose and they'll go to Tesco's and Sainsbury's, whatever's closest to them most likely. So we wanted to be in kind of all of the above really. But I think it's really important that we build a product that, that is suitable for each supermarket. And, and the way, because what I don't want to do is have the same product in everywhere. You can't buy our packet of crackling in Sainsbury's, in Tesco, in Selfridges, in John Lewis, online and in a pub. We'd, we won't allow that because if you go to a pub, we want you to be able to get a slightly different product to what you're going to get in Tesco's. And that doesn't mean a worse product or a better product. It just means a different type of product. Mm. So we do Pig of Doom in pubs. Pig of Doom is incredibly spicy. It's a little mini pack of crackling. It's the hottest chili that we can possibly make in a dry seasoning. It is so good in a pub because it's all about that kind of chili challenge. Mm. And you have a packet and you, you, you will down a pint of milk like instantly. Um, we'll also do our marvellous maple, our salt and vinegar. Uh, we'll do our Coleman's mustard, our, our, um, uh, our black pepper. So, but in a supermarket, we'll do our scratching and we'll do our perfectly salted products. In Sainsbury's, we'll do our multi-bag, which is six packs. In Selfridges, we'll do our jar of crackling and we'll do our mm. gift pack. Um, in John Lewis, we'll do a, an apple sauce and a jar of crackling in a lovely gift pack, or we'll do our three little jars together. So you can't get the same product in every single shop. Mm. And, it, and it, it also ensures that we're not, we don't start competing on price. We don't have a price war. We don't get Sainsbury's and Tesco trying to fight it out mm. uh, like they do with some more of the commodity type products. Mm. Uh, and it also gives the consumer choice. It means that if they do go into Tesco, they you know they can get that product, but if they happen to go to a different store, they'll get something else. Okay. Is it more for that choice rather than targeting the individual demographics or or consumers? Or or is both, I guess? It's it's both, yeah. yeah. And it's kind of it's being aware of you know, we we're very we're very honest about who we are. We are we you know, we, we are not gonna sit well in certain retail environments. Um, you couldn't sell our packet of scratchings in Selfridges. I mean that's just it's just not right. People don't go to Selfridges for a packet of scratchings. Ooh. They go for something more exciting, something they, don't, they wouldn't get like, in, in a normal convenience store. So that's why we have to give that consumer something that's kind of a lot more premium. And, and really, how do you make scratchings premium is you have to make them into a gift. Mm. You can't, I mean, maybe you could put truffle on scratchings, but I think that's getting a, it's a bit mm. much. <laughs> um, I think the, the, the beauty about scratching is it's just unashamedly proud of what it is. It's a very mm. simple product because um, you really only take one piece of of pigskin and you fry it for 30 minutes. That's literally all, all you can do. So you've got nowhere to hide. Mm. So for us, we've, we, the way we make it premium is we, we display it in ways that, that people see value in. And they think, oh, actually, that, putting it in a gift set like that and, and adding exciting flavors to it is worth, is worth something, is worth going to self just for. So in, in going into supermarkets, um, and again, I guess structuring mm -hmm. uh, which supermarkets to go into first, did you consciously choose independence before you went into the bigger chains? or 
How did you go about that process? So, so I always wanted to get into a supermarket, but it was just about when and just make sure I didn't go too early. Because I think if you win a supermarket and you're not ready for it and you lose it, how, are, are you ever going to get it back? That was Ooh. my nervousness. And you could kill the brand. Um, and so what I wanted to do was I wanted to build enough of a support around Snaffling Pig in the background with other channels, so like pubs, like shops, and, and, and get to kind of iron out all my mistakes, learn from what is working and what isn't working, understand about kind of economies of scale and trying to get my operations to a point that actually I could be competitive in a supermarket and, and just getting a little bit more grown up, making sure that we were accredited. Social accreditation was really important. Uh, and so we didn't approach a supermarket until about a year and a half, two years into the journey, at which point I think it took us another year to actually land the supermarket, if I remember rightly. Um, so we're kind of about three years from, from idea of snaffling pig to actually being listed in the supermarket before we got there. I know a lot of people, and, and, and in that period of time, you know, we were probably turning over about 1.5 to 2 million quid. Um, I know a lot of brands who will just win Tesco on day one, and that will be their only customer. And, and for me, that's like, whoa, you, you're going to learn very quickly, mm. and there'll be expensive mistakes if you get it wrong. Mm. I mean, imagine if you got your packaging wrong and having to do a recall, it'd be horrendous. When we got our packaging wrong in the beginning, which we did, we spelt paprika wrong in our ingredients. I mean, absolutely, we missed out an R. Um, but we learned and we fixed it. We fixed it within a couple of days because we only had a, a very small print run that we'd done. So it was really easy for us to stick a sticker on the back of a packet. You couldn't stick a sticker on the back of a packet in Tesco. Sure. It'd all come off the shelf and you'd have to do a reprint. Sure. So it's a scaling up at the right time and going yeah, into yeah, the right place yeah. at the right time. Yeah. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're chomping at the bit to, to sell. Sure. So you have got to think, you're, you're going against your natural ability and, and kind of inclination to want to sell as fast as you can. Sure. But it's knowing when to go and when to kind of when to put the brakes on and when to go forward is a really important important job to learn. Okay. And, uh, you mentioned operational scale up as well. I mean, you able to cope with kind of growing. Were you growing sideways and upwards <laughs> quite quickly? How do you manage that internally? And how do you hire the right people at the right time oh, as well? And I guess managing the, the cash for that as well. The, uh, it's interesting, the very first person you employ is a, is a huge step. And so I employed a bookkeeper because that enabled me to, to do, not do the job I hated. I hate, I hate bookkeeping, I hate accounts, hate um, chasing cash. So that was great. So that got rid of a problem for me. Um, then we, the next people we employed were customer service people, account managers, because that enabled me to continually sell but ensure that my customers were being spoken to on a regular basis, ensure that when people phoned the office there was someone there to take the order, uh, ensure that when there were minor problems that they could get sorted by that team. Uh, then uh, about a year and a half into the journey, Udi left medical supermarket and came over to Snaffling Pig. So I kind of had my kind of partner in crime again, and that meant that I had this ability to kind of halve my job. He then focused on operations and finance, and I worried about sales and marketing. And then uh, we did that for about two years. I always get confused about timing, so it all seems to merge into one giant year. But I think we did that for about two years. And then uh, actually about uh, beginning January this year, we then split the roles again. So I have stepped aside from sales and now I do marketing and operations and finance and Udi just does sales. And that's, we're now really into the, the swing of it because we are so comfortable in the, those roles. It's naturally where we, we fit uh, that enables him to just focus purely on sales and kind of just run with it and enables me almost to support him. All my functions are just helping him do what he needs to do.
Okay. And how do you find personally like getting that work-life balance? Is that a challenge for you or something you can quite easily deal with? When you're an entrepreneur, there is no work-life balance. There's yeah. just life. Mm. And, and work is so in, entwined into your everyday life that uh, if you were to separate it, I think you would get frustrated. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't go to the office at the weekends, but I think about the business. I email. Um, I, I, I'm researching all the time. Uh, I, I'm forever, you know, when I get home from the office or from a customer, I'm, and my kid's gone to bed and, and we put a movie on, I'll look at my phone and I might do some research on uh, a different country or a different category or just do some reading about business in general. So um, I think it's, it's uh, don't, yeah, don't separate it, embrace it. It's part of who you are. Snapping Pig is very ingrained in, in my in my blood, um, sure. I can't, I can't switch off. Sure, that. if you're so passionate about it, anyway, it's it's a positive. Exactly, it's a hobby. Exactly, it's yeah. a hobby I get paid for. Uh, sure. it's great, I'm in a great position. Sure, is there one thing now uh, that you know now that you wish you had known when you're starting out snuffling big about the business or yourself, even your skill sets or what you should focus on, maybe? Ooh, uh, I think uh, if <coughs> I mean the one thing is. I've made lots of mistakes and I'm glad I have made every single one of those because as painful as they were when they were happening, they've got me to where I am today. And I am by no means, I guess, successful as a, you know, my brand is not that well known in the grand scheme of things. But I'm proud of what we're doing. I'm proud of the team we've, we, we have. I'm proud of the product that we've got. And so I'm successful in that way. I go to work every day proud of what I'm doing, regardless of whether people know me or not, know the brand or not. It, that's, a, that's secondary. Um, so, so, and I know I will make lots more mistakes to come because that's just naturally who I am. Uh, but if I was to kind of, um, if I could go back in time, I think I would tell myself to, to enjoy the moments a little bit more, is that it's, it, everything takes twice as long, maybe three times as long as you think it's going to take. That first business plan you write where you think you're going to be a millionaire in year two doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, cash is, is, is the most important thing. And, and, and just if you don't understand financial accounts, get a really good accountant, get a bookkeeper, get an FD, probably going to cost you more money than you really want to be spending, but they are absolutely critical to that, to that business. Uh, and, and I guess one more point is just get out there and sell. I have sold, I'm always selling and, always, and I just think some entrepreneurs, they, they think if they're in their office tapping out emails constantly, they'll, they'll sell, but they won't. They need to be out on the street, they need to be walking into pubs, walking into shops, no, it's seeing where their customers are and, and, and selling to them physically rather than just how do I make my website look even cooler? Because that's, is that really going to sell your brand? Sure. Okay. And what about somebody, let's say, who has an idea for a food product? What advice would you give them to kind of get the wheels turning and maybe test the product, get the MVP on the way? What, what, what advice would you give? Well, the entrepreneurs that ask me, um, you know, they've, they've got this great idea and how do they take it to the next step? Yeah. I think they worry about that that next step they mm. get so daunted by it i'm making brownies in my kitchen how can i possibly make brownies on a national scale don't worry about that yet just sell the brownies you're making and mm. as soon as you've sold the brownies you're making then then make some more and and at a point that you can't physically make any more you will find the stars will align you will find someone who can make another a, a bigger batch for you and then when they can't make any more you'll find someone who makes a bigger batch but i think so many entrepreneurs worry about three years down the line. Don't worry about that. Just worry about tomorrow. Literally, just get through today, sell as much as you can, and, and then get, get to tomorrow, and then figure it out tomorrow. There'll always be another problem around the corner. You don't have to solve them all now. Yeah, just worry about what's critical to you today. Very good. Good advice. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Nick. Thank you. And your personality, it's so clear, it's intertwined with the brand. 
it's so obvious you're having fun as well. So best of luck in the future. Right, see thank you, you very much. Take care. Thanks very much. <laughs>